everybody, with the Consumer Technology Association. I'm Tyler Suters. We are the owners and producers of CES, the largest, the most influential tech event on the planet. We are here to help you get CES ready. The dates, January 7th through the 10th, 2020, as always in Las Vegas. And today we are taking on a relatively new area of CES. We're talking about resilience. This is disaster preparedness and response tech. These are innovations that help keep the world healthy, safe, warm, powered, fed, and secure. Everything you need in the face of disaster, preparing for disaster, or recovering once the worst does strike. We're talking about the support and strengthening of the resilience regarding critical infrastructure today. How to bounce back operationally during a crisis as well. So two major companies to talk with today. First, we're speaking with the CTO of IBM's Code and Response Program, a neat program we're gonna talk about. And 2019's focus, no coincidence here, disaster preparation and recovery. Also, we are hearing from the Vice President of Engineering from Panasonic Automotive. And as you can imagine, vehicles play a key role in the area of resilience. And Panasonic is well-versed in the areas of smart cities, vehicle technology, and what the company calls friction-free connectivity. That's all coming up on this edition of CES Tech Talk. With us today is Daniel Crook. He is the CTO of IBM's Code and Response Program. Daniel, great to have you with us in a really exciting program. Oh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Let's talk about the impetus of this. What, what really started uh, the Code and Response Program? IBM is so involved in so many areas uh, in the tech sector right now. Why this effort and, and how does it drive toward the future for this company overall? Sure, yeah. So we announced the IBM Code and Response Initiative earlier in 2019, and it was a natural extension of a multi-year program that we launched last year uh, called Call for Code. Now, Call for Code is a multi-year competition. Uh, it runs over a couple of months that asks developers, the world's 23 million developers, to look at some large humanitarian problems and address that with potential technology solutions. So what we tried to do that was different with Call for Code as a competition was go beyond that idea of technology for good, technology for good hackathons, where there's no clear end target or goal or framework for those solutions to get in the areas where they're needed most. So that's why we created IBM Code and Response. It's the framework that takes the innovation that comes out of competitions like Call for Code and it puts them in the areas where those solutions can actually make a difference. So let's back up a little bit, Daniel, and, and focus on call for code to begin with, because there's a, a very obvious intersection between the program's goals and technology's roles and delivering resilient uh, solutions as well as front-end management. And I'm talking about last year's uh, winner, uh, uh, a group called Project OWL, and it had to do with hardware and software solutions uh, to address the chronic communications issues in Puerto Rico post-hurricane. Um, that's an obvious convergence of technology and resilience. Uh, what else do you see as, as a means of bringing tech-enabled aid to areas that are really in need? 
Right. Good question. So last year's team, Project Al, as you mentioned, they addressed a really important need that we kept hearing from uh, IBM Code and Response partners, uh, such as the United Nations, uh, American Red Cross, uh, and, and many other uh, experts who came and provided their expertise on what the real issues are uh, in, the, in the realm of natural disaster preparedness and response. So Project OWL, what they had learned from uh, while they were developing, developing this application was that communication uh, is the very, most, uh, very um, most important thing to get reestablished quickly after a natural disaster. Right. So they came up with a solution, a hardware and software one, to create a, a temporary quickly established network so the basic needs can be created, uh, can be captured over the network. Getting from 0% to just 1% connectivity makes a huge difference. So that's what the way they approached the problem last year. Um, but what we do want to see in code and response, or call for code submissions that we can take forward through the code and response program are things that don't just look at the post-disaster opportunities. Um, because in many cases, uh, responding to a disaster, uh, that means that uh, procedures or technology or, or other factors have come to play which have made, um, uh, made that uh, a greater impact on a community. So, so instead of responding to disasters, we want to help people prepare for them. Yeah, an excellent point about, about the, the, the front half, if you will, of, of resilience as a sector and, and technology's role in that, that preparation, that avoidance, that mitigation of, of what may strike. So going down that, that road, Daniel, what are the applications for technology, maybe, maybe the sectors is the right way to put it, that have you really excited about the resilience potential? Is it uh, drones to reach... Um, disaster areas and, and deliver critical items in need uh, in preparation or, or afterward? Is it um, uh, robotics to go places where humans can't or won't or it isn't safe for us to be? Uh, maybe it's something much more broader like 5G as a platform to enable uh, all these innovations and data point communications. What is it that really has your attention right now? Right. Well, there's, yeah, you mentioned all some great technology that'll uh, help folks prepare as well as respond. And one of the, the cooler ones that we just uh, had actually a podcast ourselves with um, <laughs> last week was uh, amateur short um, uh, amateur ham radio um, for helping reestablish networks. And that was really cool because you could see how a consumer-grade device could come together. You could join a community. Uh, you could create something and develop with software and hardware to provide a um, communications again over um, ham radio and that was really cool and drones of course are very popular it's great to see what can be done with them in terms of scanning um, areas ahead of time for risk uh, looking at combustible uh, vegetation for example and kind of look at the color of that is it healthy is it dry really cool ways to predict where there might be a wildfire risk for example um, uh, yeah and you mentioned uh, 5g infrastructure any sort of mobile technology the increasing speed of what's out there uh, the increasing power that's on uh, handheld devices now to help make decisions, to help process information, to do visual recognition. All of that stuff is being combined in amazing ways right now. And we have not only the hardware that's growing, and it's very exciting to see at CES, but also the backing services to make sense of that data, to share it, and to transform it. Um, so there's definitely lots of cool technology out of there. And it's, I can't even keep up. It's just moving so fast. <laughs> uh, well, you had to focus this I I in some way, really narrow down the idea of, of what this project would be, at least for, for 2019. So as you mentioned, it's disaster preparation, disaster recovery. But 
you're focusing very much on health and wellness. So focusing on the population itself. How did you get to that uh, selection and why the emphasis on that for, for 2019? Yeah, so last year's scope was just natural disasters and uh, we added that emphasis in 2019. So how do you um, help make people and communities uh, more resilient, healthier in response to natural disasters? And that stems from um, some of IBM's uh, work in corporate citizenship and how we react with communities where not only our customers live, but where our own employees live and help them be more resilient to um, natural disasters, which, which can't be avoided completely. But if we have the tools to get people healthy, uh, they're then able to um, get back to their jobs, connect with their families, and, um, and take part in the day-to-day activities that help you know, the, the economy grow and IBM benefits from that and users benefit from that and our employees benefit from that. So we wanted to focus on seeing if there's any sort of solutions that can look at, uh, for example, food and water safety, supply distribution, such as getting insulin to uh, pharmacies uh, in time if there's low supplies, uh, how you can avoid um, the risks that come with how disease epidemics are spread, uh, how information remains available um, when networks go down, and how you deal with the mental health of people suffering from a natural disaster. That's all part of that story. And of course, vulnerable populations. You know, Are there people who are not healthy now that are being overlooked when disaster response um, visits an area or, or access is provided to, to get people out of the way? Mm-hmm. So it's definitely, um, yeah, it's a, it, there's a lot, it's a huge area, and, and it all comes down to people, right? So you want to make sure that the people are the ones that are affected by natural disasters, uh, doing what you can to keep them um, protected. Um, that's our core focus. Right. I, I'm sure another factor um, in response especially has to do with speed, right? The, the nimble responses that, that, that technology can enable and deliver. Um, IBM is so visible nationally on, on a consumer front on AI, on artificial intelligence. Um, what is your take, Daniel, on AI's role in resilience going forward? Uh, yeah, so it's a broad area. So there's lots of different topics within it. There's visual recognition, so assessing damage, as I mentioned earlier, also looking at the risk of crops to being uh, combustible, uh, to even entering insurance claims by taking pictures of, of a damaged home or vehicle. So artificial intelligence can be used in visual recognition. Uh, You can use it for real-time communication, so transforming speech to text and vice versa, translating that on the fly, all that's very important, and then looking at machine learning. Um, So actually looking at the data that's out there, making sense of it, and helping people make better decisions quicker. Mm -hmm. So looking ahead now, um, the pace of innovation is lightning fast in well, you pick a category, but resilience too, in that it's it's relatively new, um, and it is so broad as you point out. A lot can go into it. Um, what do you look when you, or what do you see when you look, say, five years in the future for not just the field, but really for for IBM's code and response program, and where you where you want to be? Um, both call for code and code response are those multi-year programs, and the the vision that I see is that. We are helping people understand that technology um, is making a huge impact, for better or for worse, uh, on so many parts of our society. And what I would like to see is the role of the person that can create technology, that can harness it, they can take those skills, apply them to the world's largest problems, and that we inspire the next generation or people who don't traditionally look at programming as a career model to 
see what developers can do. Um, so they have this power that we rely on every day on our mobile devices, even our alarm clocks that wake us up in the morning. Uh, everything that's out there, anything you can possibly imagine in the hardware or software sector. Uh, we know that there's a growing set of tools and technologies that people can leverage. So I want to see um, those 23 million current developers um, go far beyond that, larger and larger groups of people with the power of technology and being able to use that not only for natural disaster preparedness, but also improve their lives. Um, so in terms of the code response program itself, what I would love to see is, you know, we, we, we nurture the winners that come out of Call for Code. We give them the tools to have them succeed. Uh, but I would love to see um, a lot of self-serve um, developers create these ideas um, and help spread the ideas of what their technology can do um, beyond even what we can do with just code and response. So mm -hmm. a developer can create something, uh, share it with the world, and have it adopted where it's needed most quickly. Okay, so on that topic, and this is uh, a great segue from where you just left us, Daniel. Um, look ahead on a much shorter term, let's say mm -hmm. four or five months. CES 2020 will be your first trip to CES. Um, for code and response scope, uh, for the idea of resilience in general, it's broad. It's a wide lane. So what is your strategy going into to CES in terms of making the connections that, that you need to make business-wise, but also getting a, a glimpse of the future and the technologies that can really make a difference in the area you're focusing on? Yeah, so there's um, a whole bunch of new technology and protocols and information that I've learned about uh, when looking at uh, what CES produces and what actually exists out in the world today. And what I would love to get out of my first visit to CES is understanding um, more and more about what technology that developers can build on today instead of recreating from scratch. So hopefully what we see at CES, hopefully the connections that are made between developers and uh, people producing products and services can help them realize that they don't necessarily have to recreate something that already exists, but they can leverage these tools, they can leverage these projects, put them together in new ways and um, build um, a solution around them and a sustainable business model on top of that as well. That's really what I like to see. Daniel Crook is the CTO of IBM's Code and Response Program. And Daniel, I really hope we can get you on again next year and and, and let you reflect on what you expected for your first trip to CES and what was actually delivered. Um, you can use the term whoa as often as you want. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And we'll have a new crop of winners from the Call for Code 2019 competition. So hopefully they'll join us there or at least be inspired to improve with what they built this year based on what they see there. Great. Daniel Crook, thanks so much. Joining us now is Mark Thornton. He is Vice President of Engineering for Panasonic Automotive. Mark, thanks for taking time with us today. Thank you, Tyler. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to an interesting conversation. Well, you're providing the interesting content, so uh, the heavy lift is, is on <laughs> you entirely. Uh, but a lot comes with the name Panasonic and, and, and wearing that mantle, Mark. Uh, your company's known for the sustainability story on a global scale, certainly. Uh, let's start with some of the work that Panasonic is doing in the smart cities in Japan, both where it is now in terms of status and in the in the short to midterm future there. Sure, happy to talk about that. So our sustainable smart towns in Japan are mainly on the outskirts of Tokyo, two suburbs called Fujisawa and Tsunoshima. 
Fujisan was the first town uh, that we developed in about 2014. And it's really based on three main components, lifestyle, spaces, and smart infrastructure. And the smart infrastructure is a piece that I think that we should come back to later in the conversation. But I want to stick with those three things just for now. So the lifestyle piece is all about live, work, play. We've heard that moniker a lot in the press in the US and the communities in the US. But these sustainable cities take that to a different level. So they already have dedicated spaces in them for hydrogen regeneration and solar regeneration to help power these cities. And part of the Panasonic story there is that we looked at what we need to do for our business recovery process in case of any sort of natural disaster. And we applied that to these safe spaces for humans. And we have this great human-centric approach for Panasonic that drives all of our um, delivery and technology and innovation cycle. And that human-centric approach said, what do we need to do to make this space, these cities safer, better for people to live in? A better life, a better world, a safer world. So building off of that, you know, we made sure that there were spaces there already for car sharing services, which will eventually lead to autonomous cars in Japan, but also the smart infrastructure that's needed to control and drive those sorts of towns and cities. So to what extent then, Mark, do you put yourself uh, in, in the mode of, of someone who is in a situation where resilience is key? In other words, how, how often do you imagine yourself as a tech, test subject and, and saying, okay, what is human-centric to me? What does it mean to me to be put first in, in a situation like this? Oh, absolutely. So part of my background, I came from the defense industry mm-hmm. where the mission and the end user is key. Right? And that's part of uh, my passion for technology is knowing who the end user is and what the mission is and what they're trying to achieve. So when we look at human-centric design, Panasonic's ethos around that, whether it be the smart cities in Japan or the drivers in the car for Panasonic Automotive, the company that I work for, it's what's, the, what's that mission? What are they trying to achieve? And how do we make that as seamless and as safe and as sustainable as possible? So you touched on the energy resources, right? The, the, the power gen uh, in, in, in the case of a disaster. And you, and you mentioned solar and hydrogen, of course. Um, what else is at the forefront in your mind in terms of, of something that is, that is lacking, that is a critical need after a disaster or, or a consideration for, for greater resilience? Oh, part of that would be the security, right? So in terms of the smart towns, they are really built on infrastructure security and human security. So in the towns, uh, there are lots of sensors looking at using algorithms to use heat mapping to preserve people's privacy, but we know where the humans are. Hmm. Right? So we have very sophisticated heat mapping technology that we can say, okay, there's people in this building. We need to make sure that the response services can get to them very quickly. Okay? So really that's part of that. So security and then as soon as we mention security these days, we always segue into cybersecurity mm-hmm. and the protection of data, right? And so, you know, what we're doing there and how we focus on that. And I think there's a, there's a balance there in the technology, right? There's a balance between the privacy and the protection of, of civil liberties and life. So that's a snapshot of what's going on in Japan right now. What is Panasonic doing uh, to bring that same sustainability focus 
into this country, into the U.S., um, and I'm thinking specifically of Panasonic Automotive uh, in the transportation sector. Sure. So earlier I mentioned, you know, the lifestyle, the spaces, and the smart infrastructure, which are right. part of the city. Automotive technology, we're really taking to the next level in automotive transportation that smart infrastructure. And Panasonic has two very large programs going on in smart towns now in the one in Denver with the smart city projects there, and one in Utah with the Department of Transport. And let's talk about the Denver item first. So in Denver, Panasonic as a company is looking, not only automotive, but you know, the whole company, is looking at instrumenting approximately 90 miles of the highway there, as well as instrumenting lots of the city streets. And what that's doing is looking at traffic management systems in real time. So without getting too much into the technicality, there, you know, there were two technologies looking for vehicle to infrastructure communications. One of those would be DSRC, digital short range radio communications. The other one was cellular V2X. And for the US, we've definitely gone down the cellular V2X route. So with these connected vehicles, and there's a large fleet of them now in Denver, um, we've also got our e-bike program running in Denver, so we're going to have very soon connected bicycles, and we'll be able to manage traffic, see accidents in real time using this connected technology. And it's going to be a game changer and a lifesaver, taking it back to that human mission, right? protecting what matters most, which is people. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I don't want to oversimplify, Mark, but but is that stretch of highway where... Uh, this testing and this data collection and the monitoring is underway. Um, a snapshot of where we'll be in 10, 20 years? I mean, is this, is this an, uh, essentially a window into what intelligent infrastructure is going to be in the next decade or two? I think it is. I think it's one part of the building block. I wouldn't say that it's the be all and end all, mm-hmm. but it's certainly a great learning environment for us to figure out what we can determine, in what time frame we can determine it, and what we can do with that real-time data access. So I think those are the fundamental building blocks. And 10 years from now, who knows what we'll be able to do with the technology, but that's the exciting piece, right? Mm-hmm. Is that 10 years ago, we wouldn't have even thought about having the capability to do this amount of data processing. And here we are today with the ability to do it. And so 10 years from now, I think is a very exciting time and time frame to where we could be. Yeah, clever of you not to make any uh, firm predictions as well. That's a true engineer. Uh, that, <laughs> that's that's the, the right approach when you're dealing with, with innovation. Um, let's back out for, for a moment since we're talking about resilience in, in general. Um, specifically, what does that mean to you and what does that mean to Panasonic in the automotive space? Because we are very much in a transition right now from um, you know this adaptation and acceptance and uh, uh, growth of smart vehicle technology that is enhancing and making our driving experience safer um, until we get to the point where self-driving vehicles are ubiquitous and and we are safe wherever we go? It's, it's a great question. So, you know, I think resiliency as a, as a general term, we use that to describe something like an entity's ability to quickly recover. So within the automotive space, and specifically the technologies that my team are working on. This is really about software resiliency. It's about making sure that our systems are safe and uh, in this human-centric design, 
if there is an issue, we can reset ourselves, reboot ourselves, automatically turn that feature back on again in case there is an issue, or we can block it from starting if, you know, if it's unrecoverable, right? But the whole point would be human-centered design. What's the use case? What's the mission? How do we keep the occupants of the car safe? That's got to be the key thing. So can... Because part of that decision-making process is risk awareness, right? And risk awareness and the risk profile in the vehicle through the safety case really drives our software development processes now through functional safety. A lot of people talk about functional safety. The spec is ISO 26262. But that really drives the process and hence guarantees the outcome, hopefully, for the software that we're using. So can you walk us through just a, a small scenario or, or, or even a minor case study, Mark, of when that would apply? Um, is it, and you can take your pick, is it something that's, you know, day-to-day life and, and, and simply quotidian, uh, quotidian details? Or is this something that takes place after a disaster, after a major, major power outage, or, 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 or you know, pick your, pick your challenge? Mm. So I think we should, we should probably cover a couple of use cases. <laughs> You're welcome to. Yeah, multiple choice is fine. <laughs> so, so let's go down um, possibly an easy path, right, which would be uh, I think you saw a demo at our event CS on the Hill where Panasonic announced our friction-free technology. Right. That was here in Washington um, in, uh, in May. Correct. Yep. And at that event, we announced this uh, patent-pending technology that enables us to, via a cloud service, take away the problems involved with Bluetooth um, pairing in cars. And there's a lot of data out there that would show that Bluetooth pairing and Bluetooth usage in cars is still troublesome, even though the technology has been around for over a decade now. And so our solution removes those challenges. It provides a high level of security and an interface that people are familiar with. So they don't need to know about uh, Bluetooth profiles and if they're connecting for audio or if they're connecting for phone or, or what they should be selecting. They can just use an app on their phone to log in with their username and password, a very familiar interface, and the cloud services in the back end seamlessly link that phone to the vehicle that they're driving. So in terms of resiliency, what that means is as the end user experience, I, I'm no longer encumbered by technology I don't understand or um, processes that may fail, right? Because I don't understand the pairing process or the difficulty in the pairing steps. It just happens seamlessly in the background, transparent for me. So that would be one element. That'd be a very um, simple but great use of resiliency. Mm-hmm. Another area of resiliency would be in resetting or gathering data from our ADAS control. So for Panasonic, we don't see ourselves playing in the game of being the brains of the autonomous driving car. We see ourselves on the periphery of that brain, providing the sensors for the decision-making inside the brain. And then resiliency in those sensors may be uh, backup systems or other items, software items we would put in there as watchdogs or telltales to say, hey, there's an issue with the sensor. Mm-hmm. Let's reset it before it's needed. So it would be transparent to the user. So through this human-centric design philosophy of Panasonic, there's a transparency to this. And so 
you shouldn't have to worry about resiliency as the end user. We should be doing this on your behalf in the background. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, Mark, when you take a look at uh, vehicle technology and self-driving vehicles at CES, um, the first thing that comes to mind for me and that, that I see visually are all the big name automobile manufacturers that are in this space and leading the way. But let's not lose sight of the fact that Panasonic is very much involved in keeping vehicles and, and keeping drivers safe as well through your work with partner groups, with other companies that are perhaps more traditional automotive manufacturers and companies. Absolutely, and this is part of the most exciting things that we're working on these days. And at CES, we announced our partnership with Harley-Davidson mm -hmm. and providing connected services to motorcycle riders, keeping them informed of their vehicle presence, providing uh, safety and security functions to them, but also enabling them to get more from their riding pleasure and riding experience. So that's just one of the partnerships that we have. But I think some of the other technologies that are exciting that we're working on are advances in our sensor systems, linking back to the, the question on resiliency and ADAS and uh, the functional safety type products, but also inside the cockpit. This is where Panasonic Automotive really shine, from our audio systems to our infotainment systems and working with non-traditional customers, looking at how we can best uh, create innovative solutions for domain controllers. We're seeing this integration of the cluster and the infotainment system and even head-up displays into one central control box. And that's a key strength for Panasonic Automotive. We shine in all three of those areas. We have great expertise in those areas. And that's really somewhere where we can add value for our customers. Well, for anyone who has seen the footprint of vehicle technology grow uh, during their visits at CES, um, Panasonic's a bit of a, a parallel here, Mark, in that uh, automotive technology is a growing priority for you at Panasonic and a growing opportunity in the marketplace as well, clearly. It is. It's a, it's a, it's a growing area, but Panasonic Automotive is growing at the same time. But I think we can attribute the key of our growth to two of the principles our founder sent out 100 years ago, and that's contribution to society, in other words, that's our human-centered design approach, but also it's cooperation and team spirit. And I'd just like to take a few seconds here to recognize the team that I work with on a daily basis, because these engineers are some of the best in the world. And we have a great culture here that they've developed over the last five years. We're in the top 13 of the 101 best companies in the U.S. to work for, and I couldn't be more proud of the achievements that they're making. Clearly pride and passion as well for this space from Mark Thornton, who is Vice President of Engineering for Panasonic Automotive. Mark, a great deep dive today into a topic clearly you love. Thanks for taking the time and sharing your expertise with us. Silas, thank you. I appreciate your time today. For those that are interested, please go to our website at panasonic.com where there are a lot more detail on the topics we discussed today. Thank you. All right, coming up next time on CES Tech Talk, we are tackling a growing topic, a red-hot topic at CES. That is digital health. And we are speaking with a major insurance company about their plans for CES 2020. And remember, every company today is or needs to be a tech company. Our conversation with Humana is coming up on our next edition. Now, we want you to be CES ready year-round. So, 
What you can do is subscribe to the CES Tech Talk podcast, and that way you won't miss any episodes as we're getting you geared up for the 2020 show. As for CES 2020, the show dates once again, January 7th through the 10th in Las Vegas. The information you need to get ready is at ces.tech. Before we go, a big shout out and thank you to the stars who really make this show go. Executive producer, Tina Anthony, and our senior studio engineer, John Lindsay. You two are the very best in the business. I'm Tyler Suters. Let's talk tech again soon.